Chapter 19, Part 3 of The Counters of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Counters of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 19, Part 3. All this lasted more than an hour, and thanks to heaven, the fugitive was neither seen nor hit. To be satisfied of this, I joined the Schwartzes upon the esplanade. They were so troubled and agitated themselves that they did not think to be astonished at seeing me out of my cell in the middle of the night. Perhaps also they had agreed with Mayer to let me come out that night. Schwartz, having run about like a madman and satisfied himself that no one of the captives committed to his charge was missing, began to be somewhat tranquilized. But his wife and he were struck with a sorrowful consternation, as if the salvation of a man were in their eyes a public and private calamity, an enormous attack upon celestial justice. The other turnkeys, the soldiers, who went and came quite aghast, exchanged with them words which expressed the same despair, the same terror. In their eyes, an attempt at escape is apparently the blackest of crimes." O oh God of goodness, how frightful they appeared to me, those mercenaries devoted to the barbarous employment of depriving their fellows of the sacred right of being free. But suddenly it seemed that supreme justice had resolved to inflict an exemplary punishment upon my two keepers. Madame Schwartz, having entered her lodging for an instant, came out again with loud cries. Gottlieb, Gottlieb, said she in a smothered voice, stop. Don't fire! Don't kill my son! It is he! It is he! It certainly must be he! In the midst of the agitation of the two Schwartzes, I gathered from their disjointed words that Gottlieb was not in his bed nor in any corner of their dwelling, and that he probably had, without its being noticed, resumed his old habit of running over the roofs when asleep. Gottlieb was a somnambulist. As soon as this information was circulated through the citadel, the tumult was calmed by degrees. Each jailer had had time to go his rounds and to ascertain that no prisoner had disappeared. All returned quickly to their posts. The officers were delighted with this result. The soldiers laughed at their alarm. Madame Schwartz, out of her senses, ran on every side, and her husband sadly explored the ditch, fearing that the concussion produced by the firing of the cannon and the musketry might have precipitated into it poor Gottlieb, awakened with a start upon his perilous course. I followed him in this exploration. The moment would have been favorable, perhaps, to have attempted an escape myself, for I seemed to see the gates open and everyone inattentive, but I did not dwell upon this thought, Absorbed as I was by that of finding the poor afflicted one who had testified so much affection for me. Still Mr. Schwartz, who never loses his wits entirely, seeing the daybreak, requested me to return to my room, because it was altogether contrary to his orders to permit me thus to wander about at unseasonable hours. He accompanied me in order to lock me in, but the first object which struck my eyes on entering my chamber was Gottlieb, peacefully asleep in my armchair. He had happily found a refuge there before the alarm was spread over the whole fortress, or perhaps his sleep had been so sound and his course so swift that he had been able to escape all dangers. I advised his father not to waken him suddenly, 
and promised to watch over him until Madame Schwartz could be informed of this happy news. As soon as I was alone with Gottlieb, I gently laid my hand upon his shoulder, and speaking in a low voice, I tried to question him. I had heard that somnambulists could be placed in communication with friendly persons and reply to them with clearness. My attempt succeeded wonderfully. Gottlieb, said I to him, where then have you been tonight? Tonight, replied he, is it night already? I thought I saw the morning sun shine upon the roofs. Then you have been up on the roofs? Oh, yes, the red breast, that good little angel, came to call me at my window. I flew out with him, and we went very high, very far in the sky, quite near the stars, and almost to the dwellings of the angels. When we went away, to be sure, we met Beelzebub, who ran upon the roofs and parapets to catch us. But he cannot fly, not he, because God condemns him to a long penitence, and he sees angels and birds flying without being able to reach them. And after having passed through the clouds, you descended here, nevertheless? The redbreast said to me, Let us go and see my sister, who is ill, and I came back with him to find you in your cell. Then you can enter my cell, Gottlieb? Oh, yes. I have come several times to watch you since you have been ill. The redbreast steals the keys from under my mother's bolster, and Beelzebub may try as hard as he will. He cannot wake her when the angel has once put her to sleep by flying invisible around her head. Who has taught you to know angels and devils so well? It is my master, replied the somnambulist with an infantile smile, in which was depicted a simple enthusiasm. And who is your master? God first, and then the sublime shoemaker. And how do you call that sublime shoemaker? Oh, it is a great name, but it must not be spoken, you see. It is a name that my mother does not know. She does not know that I have two books in the whole of the chimney, one of sermons, which I do not read, but which I pretend to when she looks at me, and another which I have devoured for four years past, and which is my celestial bread, my spiritual life, the book of truth, the salvation and light of the soul. And who made that book? He, the shoemaker of Gorlitz, Jacob Bohm. Here we were interrupted by Madame Schwartz, whom I with difficulty prevented from rushing towards her son and embracing him. This woman adores her offspring. May her sins be forgiven her. She wished to speak to him, but Gottlieb did not hear her, and I alone could induce him to return to his bed, where, as I was informed this morning, he peacefully continued his slumbers. He remembered nothing, though his strange disease and the alarm of last night are now the talk of all Spandau. Here I am again in my cell after some hours of a very sad and very agitated half-liberty. I do not desire to leave it again at such a cost. Still, I might escape, perhaps. I shall think of nothing else now that I feel myself here under the hand of a villain and threatened with dangers worse than death, worse than an eternal suffering. I shall think of it seriously henceforth, and who knows? I shall succeed, perhaps. It is said that a persevering will always accomplishes its object. Oh, my God, protect me. May 5th. Since these last events, I have lived quite tranquilly. I have come to count my days of rest as days of happiness and to thank God for them, 
as in prosperity we thank him for those which have passed without disaster. It is certain that we must know misfortune in order to issue from the apathetic ingratitude in which we usually live. I now reproach myself for having allowed so many beautiful days of my thoughtless youth to pass without appreciating their value and without blessing that providence which granted them to me. I did not say to myself often enough in those times that I did not deserve them, and it is on that account without doubt that I in some degree do deserve the evils which are now heaped upon me. I have not again seen that odious recruiter now become more frightful to me than he was on the banks of the Moldaw when I took him quite simply for an ogre, a devourer of children. Now I see in him a persecutor more abominable and more dangerous still. When I think of the revolting pretensions of that wretch, of the authority he exercises about me, of the facility with which he could introduce himself at night into my chamber, without the Schwartzes, servile and avaricious animals, being willing to protect me against him, I feel myself dying of shame and despair. I look at those pitiless bars which would not permit me to cast myself from the window. I cannot procure poison. I have not even a weapon with which to pierce my breast. Still, I have some reasons for hope and confidence, which I delight to invoke in my thoughts, for I do not wish to permit myself to be weakened by fear. In the first place, Schwartz does not like the adjutant, who, from what I have understood, speculates in advance of him upon the necessities and desires of his prisoners by selling to them, to the great injury of Schwartz, who would wish to have the monopoly, a little light, a ray of the sun, a morsel of bread in addition to the ration and other munificences of the prison discipline. Then these Schwartzes, the woman especially, begin to have some friendship for me in consequence of that which Gottlieb manifests and in consequence of the salutary influence which they say I have upon his mind. If I were threatened, they would not come to my assistance, but as soon as I should be so seriously, I could, through them, make my complaints reach the commander of the garrison. He is a man who appeared gentle and humane the only time I have seen him. Gottlieb, moreover, would be prompt to render me that service, and without entering into any explanation, I have already arranged with him to that effect. He is quite ready to carry a letter which I have also ready, but I hesitate to ask for help before the danger really comes, for my enemy, if he ceases to annoy me, might turn off as a jest a declaration which I should have had the ridiculous prudery to consider as serious. However this may be, I sleep with one eye open, and I exercise my muscular strength for a pugilistic combat in case of need. I lift my furniture, I strengthen my arms against the iron bars of my window, I harden my hands by striking against the walls. If anyone saw me thus exercising myself, he would consider me crazy or despairing. Still, I undertake it with the greatest coolness, and have discovered that my physical strength is much greater than I had supposed. In that state of security in which our ordinary life passes, we do not inquire into our means of defense. We do not know them. On finding myself strong, I feel myself become brave, and my confidence in God increases with my efforts to second his protection. I often remember those fine verses which Porpora told me 
he had read upon the wall of a dungeon of the Inquisition at Venice. Dishi mi fido, mi guardidio. Dishi non mi fido, mi guardero io. Footnote. From those whom I trust, may God protect me. From those whom I distrust, I will protect myself. More happy than the unfortunate who trace this somber invocation, I can at least trust without reserve to the chastity and devotedness of this poor exalt Gottlieb. His attacks of somnambulism have not again appeared. His mother, moreover, watches him assiduously. During the day, he comes to talk with me in my chamber. I have not been willing to descend to the esplanade since I there met Mayer. Gottlieb has explained to me his religious ideas. They appear very beautiful, though often strange, and I have wished to read his theology of Boehm, since decidedly he is a Boehmist, in order to know what he has added of his own to the enthusiastic reveries of the illustrious shoemaker. He has lent me that precious book, and I have entered upon it at my risk and peril. I now understand that the reading of it has troubled a simple mind, which has taken as literal the symbols of a mystic rather crazed himself. I do not pride myself upon understanding them or explaining them well, but I seem to see in them a ray of high religious divination and the inspiration of a generous poetry. What has struck me most is his theory respecting the devil. In the combat with Lucifer, God did not destroy him. Blind mortals, you do not see the reason of this. It is that God fought against God. It was a struggle of one portion of the divinity against the other. I remember that Albert explained to me, somewhat in the same manner, the terrestrial and transitory reign of the evil principle, and that the chaplain of Reisenberg listened to him with horror and condemned this belief as Manichaeism. Albert asserted that our Christianity was a Manichaeism more complete and more superstitious than his own, inasmuch as it consecrates the eternity of the evil principle, while in his system he admitted the restoration of the bad principle, that is to say, conversion and reconciliation. Evil, according to Albert, was only error, and divine light was one day to dissipate the error and cause the evil to cease. I confess, my friends, even should I appear to you very much of a heretic, that this eternal condemnation of Satan to occasion evil, to love it, and to close his eyes to the truth, appeared then, and still appears to me, an impious idea. In fine, Jacob Bohm seems to be a millenarian, that is, a believer in the resurrection of the just and their abode with Jesus Christ upon a new earth born from the dissolution of the present, during a thousand years of happiness without cloud and of wisdom without veil, after which will come the complete reunion of souls with God and the recompenses of eternity more perfect even than the millennium. I well remember having heard this symbol explained by Count Albert when he related to me the stormy history of his old Bohemia and of his dear Taborites, who were imbued with these beliefs, renewed from the first ages of Christianity. Albert believed in all this in a less material sense, and without deciding upon the duration of the resurrection or upon the period of the future age of the world. 
but he prophetically perceived and foresaw an approaching dissolution of human society, which was to give place to an era of sublime renovation, neither did Albert doubt that his soul, issuing from the narrow passes of death to recommence here below a new series of existences, would be called to contemplate that providential recompense, and those days, by turns terrible and magnificent, promised to the efforts of the human race. This magnanimous faith, which seemed monstrous to the orthodox inhabitants of Reisenberg, and which has passed into me after having at first seemed so new and so strange, is a faith of all ages and all people, and in spite of the efforts of the Roman Church to stifle it, or in spite of her inability to enlighten it and to purify it of its material and superstitious sense, I see well that it has filled and excited to enthusiasm many ardently pious souls. It is even said that great saints have had it. I therefore give myself up to it without remorse and without fear, certain that an idea adopted by Albert cannot be other than a grand idea. It delights me, moreover, and spreads quite a celestial poetry over my thoughts of death and the sufferings which will doubtless precede it in my own case. This Jacob Bohm pleases me. That disciple, who is in the Schwartz's dirty kitchen, busied with sublime reveries and surrounded by celestial visions, while his parents need, traffic, and brutify themselves, appears to me very pure and touching, with his book which he knows by heart without well understanding it, and his shoe which he has undertaken in order to model his life upon that of his master without succeeding. Infirm in body and mind, but simple, candid, and of an angelic purity. Poor Gottlieb, destined doubtless to be crushed by falling from the height of a rampart in your imaginary flight through the sky, or to sink under the weight of premature infirmities. You will have passed over the earth like an unknown saint, like an exiled angel without having understood evil, without having known happiness, without having even felt the warmth of the sun that enlightens a world, in consequence of contemplating the mystic sun that shines in your thought. No one will have known you, no one will have pitied you and admired you as you deserve. And I, who alone have discovered the secret of your meditations, I, who comprehending also the ideal, would have had strength to seek for and realize it in my life, I shall die like you in the flower of my youth, without having acted, without having lived. There are in the crevices of these walls which shelter and consume us both, some poor little plants which the wind breaks and the sun never colors. They dry there without flowering and without bearing fruit. Still they seem to renew themselves, but it is seeds from afar which the breeze brings to the same spots and which endeavor to grow and to live upon the remains of the former ones. Thus do captives vegetate and thus are prisons repeopled. But is it not strange that I should here find myself with an ecstatic of an order inferior to that of Albert, but attached like him to a secret religion, to a belief which is laughed at, persecuted, or despised. Gottlieb assures me that there are many other bolmists in this country, that many shoemakers profess his doctrines openly, and that the fundamentals of that doctrine are implanted through all ages in the souls of numerous philosophers and unknown prophets belonging to the common people. 
who formerly excited Bohemia to fanaticism and who at this day nourish a secret flame under the ashes throughout all Germany. I remember indeed those ardent Hussite shoemakers whose bold predictions and terrible exploits in the time of Jean Ziska, Albert related to me. The very name of Jacob Bohm attests this glorious origin. I know not indeed what is passing in the contemplative brain of patient Germany. My noisy and dissipated life withdraws me from such an examination. But were Gottlieb and Zdenko the last disciples of the mysterious religion which Albert preserved as a precious talisman, I feel nonetheless that this religion is my own, since it proclaims future equality among men and the future manifestation of the justice and goodness of God upon the earth. Oh yes, I must indeed believe in that kingdom of God announced to man by the Christ. I must indeed count upon an overthrowal of these iniquitous monarchies and of these impure societies in order not to lose my faith in providence on seeing myself here. No news from prisoner number two. If Mayer did not invent an impudent falsehood in relating to me her words, it is Amelia of Prussia who thus accuses me of treachery. May God pardon her for doubting me, who did not doubt her, in spite of the same accusations respecting her. I will make no more attempts to see her. By seeking to justify myself, I might compromise her anew, as I have already done without knowing how. My red breast keeps me faithful company. On seeing Gottlieb without his cat in my chamber, he has become familiarized with him, and poor Gottlieb is completely mad with pride and joy. He calls him Lord and does not allow himself to be familiar with him. It is with the deepest respect and a kind of religious trembling that he presents to him his food. I have tried in vain to persuade him that this is only a bird like the others. I cannot persuade him that it is not a celestial spirit who has taken this form. I endeavor to divert him by giving him some notions about music, and he really has, I am certain, a very fine musical intelligence. His parents are enchanted with my attentions and have offered to put a spinet into one of their rooms where I could give lessons to their son and practice also for myself. But I dare not accept this proposition which would have filled me with joy some days since. I do not even dare to sing any more in my chamber, so much do I fear to attract here that gross lover of music, that ex-professor of the trumpet, who may God confound. May 10th. For a long while I have asked myself what had become of those unknown friends, those wonderful protectors whose intervention in my affairs the Count de St. Germain announced to me, and who had apparently interfered in them only to hasten the disasters with which the royal goodwill threatened me. If they were the conspirators whose punishment I share, they have been all dispersed or overthrown at the same time with myself, thought I, or else they have abandoned me on my refusal to escape from the clutches of Monsieur Budenbrock on the day when I was transferred from Berlin to Spandau. While now they have again made their appearance and have taken Gottlieb for their emissary. How rash! May they not draw upon the head of this innocent the same misfortunes as upon mine. This morning Gottlieb brought me a billet in these words. We are working for thy deliverance. The moment approaches. 
but a new danger threatens thee, which would retard the success of our enterprise. Distrust any one who would induce thee to escape before we have given thee sure notice and precise details. A snare is laid for thee. Be upon thy guard and persevere in thy strength. Thy brothers, the invisibles. This billet fell at the feet of Gottlieb as he was crossing one of the prison yards this morning. He firmly believes that it fell from heaven or that the redbreast had some hand in it. By making him talk without endeavoring too much to oppose his very notions, I have learned something which may perhaps have a foundation in truth. I asked him if he knew what were the invisibles. No one knows, replied he, though everyone pretends to know. What, Gottlieb, then you have heard of persons who are called by that name? At the time when I was serving my apprenticeship with the master shoemaker in the city, I heard a great many things about them. They are talked about then? The people know them? This is how it came to my ears, and among all the words which I have heard, these are the small number that are worth the trouble of listening to and retaining. A good workman among our comrades had wounded his hand so severely that there was talk of cutting it off. He was the sole support of a numerous family, whom he had till then assisted with much courage and love. He came to visit us with his hand bound up, and sadly said on seeing us at work, You are very happy to have your hands free. As for me, I shall soon be obliged, I think, to go to the hospital, and my poor mother will have to ask charity to keep my little brothers and sisters from dying of hunger. A contribution was proposed, but we were all so poor, and I, though born of rich parents, had so little money at my disposal that we could not collect enough to assist our poor comrade to any purpose. Each one, having emptied his pockets, sought in his brains for some method to relieve France from his unfortunate condition. But none was found, for France had knocked at all the doors and had been repulsed everywhere. They say that the king is very rich and that his father left him a great treasure, but they also say that he uses it to equip soldiers. And as that was in time of war, the king absent and everybody in fear of want, the poor people suffered a great deal, and France could not get sufficient aid from the good hearts. As to the bad hearts, they never had a copper at their disposal. Suddenly a young man in the shop said to France, In your place I know well what I would do, but perhaps you will not have the courage. It is not courage that will be wanting, said France. What must I do? You must apply to the invisibles. Franz appeared to understand, for he shook his head with an air of repugnance and did not reply. Some young men, who, like myself, did not know what it meant, asked for an explanation and were answered on all sides. You don't know the invisibles? What children you are! The invisibles are people who are not seen but who act. They do all sorts of good and all sorts of evil. No one knows if they live anywhere, but they are everywhere. It is said they are to be found in the four quarters of the world. It is they who assassinate many travelers and who assist many others against robbers, according as those travelers are judged by them worthy of punishment or protection. They are the instigators of all revolutions. They go into all courts, direct all affairs, decide upon war or peace, ransom the prisoners, relieve the unfortunate, punish the wicked, make kings tremble on their thrones, 
and find they are the cause of all the happiness and unhappiness there is in the world. They are perhaps mistaken more than once, but finally it is said they have always good intentions, and moreover, who can say if what is unhappiness today will not be the cause of great happiness tomorrow? We listen to this with great astonishment and great admiration, pursued Gottlieb, and little by little I heard enough to be able to tell you all that is thought of the invisibles among the workmen and the poor ignorant people. Some say that they are wicked men devoted to the devil, who communicates to them his power, the gift of knowing hidden things, the power of tempting men by the bait of riches and honors of which they can dispose, the faculty of knowing the future, of making gold, of curing the sick, of making the old young again, of resuscitating the dead, of preserving the living from death, for it is they who have discovered the philosopher's stone and the elixir of long life. Others think that they are religious and benevolent men who have put their fortunes in common to assist the unfortunate and who agree together to reform abuses and to recompense virtue. In our workshop, each made his comment. It is the ancient order of the Templars, said one. They are now called Freemasons, said another. No, said a third. They are Hernhuders of Zinzendorf, otherwise called the Moravian Brothers, the ancient Brothers of the Union, the ancient Orphans of Mount Tabor. In fine, it is old Bohemia which is still erect and which secretly threatens all the powers of Europe because it wishes to make of the universe one republic. Others still pretended that they were only a handful of sorcerers, pupils and disciples of Paracelis, of Balm, of Swedenborg, and now of Schrapfer, the coffee house keeper. This is a fine juxtaposition, who by enchantments and infernal practices wish to govern the world and overturn empires. The greater number agreed in saying that it was the ancient secret tribunal of the Frank judges which had never been dissolved in Germany, and which, after having acted in the dark for several centuries, began to raise its head boldly, and to cause to be felt its arm of iron, its sword of fire, and its scales of diamond. As to Franz, he hesitated to apply to them, because, as he said, when you had accepted their benefits, you found yourself bound to them for this life and for the other, to the great detriment of your salvation and the great peril of your relations. Still necessity conquered fear. One of our comrades, who had given him the advice and who was strongly suspected of being connected with the invisibles, though he earnestly denied it, secretly communicated to him the means of making what he called the signal of distress. We never knew in what that signal consisted. Some said that Franz traced a cabalistic mark with his blood upon his door. Others that he went at night upon a hill between four roads at the foot of a cross where a black rider appeared to him. Finally, there were some who spoke simply of a letter that he had deposited in the hollow of an old weeping willow at the entrance of the cemetery. What is certain is that he was assisted, that his family were enabled to await his cure without begging, and that he had the means of employing a skillful surgeon who got him out of the difficulty. Of the invisibles he never said a word, except that he should bless them all the days of his life. And this, my sister, is the way in which I first learned the existence of those terrible and beneficent beings.
But you, who are more learned than those young men of your workshop, said I to Gottlieb, what do you think of the invisibles? Are they sectarians, charlatans, or conspirators? Here Gottlieb, who had expressed himself hitherto very rationally, fell into his accustomed wanderings, and I could gather nothing from him but that they were beings of a nature really invisible, impalpable, and who, like God and his angels, could not be perceived by our senses except in assuming certain appearances for the purpose of communicating with men. It is very evident, said he, that the end of the world approaches, manifest signs have appeared, the Antichrist is born, there are some who say he is in Prussia and is named Voltaire, but I do not know this Voltaire, and it may be some other, especially as V is not W, and as the name which the Antichrist will bear among men will begin with that letter and will be German. Footnote. This might mean Weishaupt. He was born in 1748. While awaiting the great miracles which are to be displayed in this age, God, who never interferes ostensibly, God, who is eternal silence, footnote, an expression of Jacob Balm, raises up amongst us beings of a supreme order for good and for evil, the latter to prove the just, the former to make them triumph. And then the great combat between the two principles has already commenced. The king of evil, the father of error and of ignorance, defends himself in vain. The archangels have drawn the bow of science and of truth. Their arrows have pierced the cuirass of Satan. Satan groans and still contends, but soon he will renounce falsehood, lose all his venom, and instead of the impure blood of reptiles, feel the dew of pardon circulate in his veins. This is the clear and certain explanation of all that is incomprehensible and frightful in the world. Good and evil are struggling together in an upper region inaccessible to the efforts of men. Victory and defeat hover over our heads without anyone's being able to determine them at his will. Frederick of Prussia attributes to the force of his arms the successes which destiny alone has granted him while waiting to destroy or to raise him according to its hidden end. Yes, I tell you, it is quite natural that men should no longer comprehend anything that happens upon the earth. They see impiety assume the weapons of faith and reciprocally. They suffer oppression, misery, and all the evils of discord, and their prayers are not heard. The miracles of the ancient religion do not interfere. They no longer agree about anything. They quarrel without knowing why. They march blindfold toward an abyss. It is the invisibles who impel them thither, but men do not know if the miracles which attest their mission be of God or of the devil, as in the commencement of Christianity, Simon the magician appeared to many quite as powerful, quite as divine, as the Christ. But I tell you that all miracles come from God, since Satan could not perform any without his permission, and that among those who are called the invisibles there are some who act from the direct light of the Holy Ghost, while others receive their power through a cloud, and do good by fatality, thinking to do evil. This is a very abstract explanation, my dear Gottlieb. Is it Jacob Bohm's or your own? It is his, if you wish so to understand it. It is mine if his inspiration has not suggested it to me.
Well and good, Gottlieb. I am as wise as before, since I do not know if these invisibles are good or evil angels for me. May 12th. Wonders do commence, in fact, and my destiny is shaken in the hands of the invisibles. I shall say, as does Gottlieb, are they of God or of the devil? Today Gottlieb was called by the sentinel who guards the esplanade and has his post upon the little bastion which terminates it. That sentinel, according to Gottlieb, is no other than an invisible, a spirit. The proof of this is that Gottlieb, who knows all those on guard and talks freely with them when they amuse themselves by ordering shoes of him, has never seen this one, and then he appeared to him to be of more than human stature, and his face has an indefinable expression. Gottlieb, said he to him in a very low voice, the porporina must be liberated in three nights. That depends on you. You can take the keys of her chamber from under your mother's pillow, lead her across your kitchen, and bring her here to the end of the esplanade. Then I will take care of the rest. Give her notice that she may be ready, and remember that if you lack prudence and zeal, she, you, and I are all lost. This is my situation. That message has made me ill with emotion. All this night I have been feverish. All this night I have heard the mysterious violin. To fly, to leave this sad prison, to escape above all from the terrors which that mayor causes me. Ah, if I need risk only my life for that, I am ready. But what will be the consequence of my flight to Gottlieb, to that sentinel whom I do not know and who devotes himself so gratuitously and find for those unknown accomplices who are about to assume a new burden. I tremble, I hesitate, I can decide upon nothing. I still write to you without thinking of any preparations for flight. No, I will not fly before being satisfied respecting the consequences to my friends and protectors. This poor Gottlieb is resolved upon all. When I ask him if he fears nothing, he replies that he would joyfully suffer martyrdom for my sake, and when I add that he will perhaps regret not seeing me any more, he says that is his concern and that I do not know what he intends to do. Besides all this seems to him an order from heaven, and he obeys without reflection the invisible power which impels him. But for myself, I read over attentively the billet from the invisibles, which I received a few days since, and I fear the message of this sentinel may in fact be the snare against which I must be on my guard. I have still forty-eight hours before me. If Mayer again makes his appearance, I risk all. If he continues to forget me, and I have no better guarantee than the word of an unknown, I remain. Thirteenth. Oh, decidedly, I trust myself to destiny, to providence which sends to me unexpected help. I depart, I rest upon the powerful arm which covers me with its aegis. On walking this morning upon the esplanade, where I ventured in the hope of receiving some new revelation from the spirits who surround me, I looked at the bastion where the sentinel has his post. There were two, one who mounted guard with his musket on his arm, another who went and came as if he sought for something. The tall stature of the latter attracted my attention. It seemed as if he was not unknown to me, but I could look at him only by stealth, and at every turn I was obliged to walk away from him. 
Finally, in a moment when I was going towards him, he also came towards us, as if by chance. And though he was upon a glacis much higher than ours, I recognized him completely. A cry almost escaped me. It was Carl the Bohemian, the deserter whom I had saved from the clutches of Mayer in the forest of Bohemia, the Carl whom I afterwards again saw at Roswald in Moravia, at Count Hoditz's, and who sacrificed to me a project of fearful vengeance. He is a man devoted to me body and soul, and whose savage face, broad flat nose, red beard, and delf-colored eyes seem to me today beautiful as the features of Gabriel. That is he, said Gottlieb to me in a low voice. That is the emissary of the invisibles, and invisible himself. I am certain, at least he could be if he wished. That is your liberator. That is he who will get you out of here tomorrow night. My heart beat so strongly that I could hardly stand. Tears of joy escaped from my eyes. To hide my emotion from the other sentinel, I approached the parapet, withdrawing from the bastion and pretended to look at the plants in the ditch. Still by a side glance, I saw Carl and Gottlieb exchange, without much mystery, a few words that I could not hear. After some moments had elapsed, Gottlieb returned near me and said rapidly, He is going to descend here. He is going into our house to drink a bottle of wine. Pretend not to notice him. My father has gone out. While my mother goes to get the wine at the canteen, you will return to the kitchen as if on your way to your room, and you can speak with him an instant. In fact, when Carl had talked some minutes with Madame Schwartz, who does not disdain to refresh the veterans of the Citadel for her own profit, I saw Gottlieb appear upon the threshold. I understood that this was the signal. I entered. I found myself alone with Carl. Gottlieb had followed his mother to the canteen. Poor child, it seems as if friendship had suddenly revealed to him the craft and presence of mind necessary for the practice of real things. He designedly committed a thousand awkwardnesses, let the candle fall, made his mother impatient, and kept her long enough for me to come to an understanding with my liberator. Signora, said Carl to me, here I am. I see you once more. I was retaken by the recruiters. It was in my destiny. But the king recognized me and forgave me, on your account perhaps. Then he gave me permission to depart, even promising me some money, which, however, he did not give me. I was returning to my country when I learned that you were here. I went to a famous sorcerer in order to know how I must go to work to help you. The sorcerer sent me to Prince Henry, and Prince Henry sent me back to Spandau. There are about us some powerful persons whom I do not know, but who are at work for you. They spare neither money nor labor, I assure you. In fine, all is ready. Tomorrow evening the gates will open of their own accord before us. All who could bar the passage against us are gained over. The Schwartzes alone are not in our interest, but tomorrow their slumbers will be heavier than usual, and when they wake you will already be far away. We carry with us Gottlieb, who desires to follow you. I decamp with you. We risk nothing. All is foreseen. Be ready, Signora, and now return to the Esplanade, so that the old woman may not see you here. 
I could only express my gratitude to Carl by tears, and I ran to hide them from the inquisitorial glance of Madame Schwartz. Oh, my friends, I shall see you once again. I shall press you in my arms. I shall escape once more from this frightful mare. I shall see again the broad expanse of the sky, the smiling fields, Venice, Italy. I shall sing again. I shall again find sympathy. Oh, this prison has retempered my life and renewed my heart, which was being extinguished in the languor of indifference. How I will live, how I will love, how I will be pious and good. And yet, profound enigma of the human heart, I feel terrified and almost sad at the idea of leaving this cell in which I have passed three months in a perpetual effort of courage and resignation. That esplanade on which I have walked under the influence of so many melancholy reveries, those old walls which appeared to me so high, so cold, so serene in the moonlight, and that broad ditch, the mournful waters of which are so beautiful a green, and those thousands of sad flowers which the spring has sown upon its banks. And my red breast above all, Gottlieb pretends that he will follow us, but at that hour he will be asleep in his ivy and will not perceive our departure. O oh, dear little creature, may you become the companion and the consolation of her who shall succeed me in this cell. May she cherish and respect you as I have done. Now I am going to try to sleep in order to be strong and calm tomorrow. I seal this manuscript, which I intend to carry with me. By means of Gottlieb, I have procured a fresh provision of paper, pencils, and taper, which I leave in my hiding place in order that these riches, invaluable to a prisoner, may become the joy of some other after me. Here ends Consuelo's journal. We resume the faithful recital of her adventures. It is necessary to inform the reader that Carl had not falsely boasted of being assisted and employed by powerful persons. Those invisible chevaliers who labored for the deliverance of our heroine had scattered gold by handfuls. Several turnkeys, eight or ten veterans, and even one officer had engaged to keep quiet, to see nothing, and in case of an alarm, to pursue the fugitives only for form's sake. On the evening fixed for the flight, Carl supped with the Schwartzes and, pretending to be intoxicated, invited them to drink with him. Mother Schwartz had a hot throat, like most women engaged in the culinary art. Her husband did not dislike the brandy of his canteen when he tasted it at the expense of another. A narcotic drug, secretly introduced by Carl into the bottle, assisted the effect of the powerful beverage. The Schwartz couple gained their bed with difficulty and snored so loud that Gottlieb, who attributed everything to supernatural influences, did not fail to believe them enchanted when he approached to take away the keys. Carl had returned to the bastion to stand his guard. Consuelo reached that place with Gottlieb without difficulty and intrepidly ascended the rope ladder which the deserter threw to her. But poor Gottlieb, who insisted on flying with her in spite of all her remonstrances, became a great embarrassment in this passage. He, who in his attacks of somnambulism ran like a cat on the roofs, could not make three steps nimbly upon the most level ground when awake. Supported by the conviction that he was following an emissary from heaven, he had no fear and would unhesitatingly have thrown himself from the top of the rampart, 
if Carl had advised him, but his bold confidence added to the dangers of his awkwardness. He climbed at random, disdaining to see anything or calculate anything. After having made Consuelo shudder twenty times, as she twenty times thought him lost, he at last reached the platform, and thence our three fugitives directed their steps through the corridors of that part of the citadel in which were lodged those sentinels who were accomplices in their attempt. They were advancing without interruption when they suddenly found themselves face to face with the adjutant Nantuil, alias ex-recruiter mayor. Consuelo thought herself lost, but Carl prevented her flight by saying, Fear nothing, Signora. The adjutant is your friend. Stop here, said Nantuil hurriedly. There is an unforeseen obstacle. Adjutant Weber has taken it into his head to come and sup in our quarter with that old fool of a lieutenant. They are in the hall through which you are obliged to pass. We must find some way to get rid of them. Carl, return quickly to your post. Your absence may be perceived too soon. I will come for you when it is time. Madame will enter my chamber. Gottlieb will come with me. I will pretend that he is asleep. My two boobies will run after him to see him, and when the hall is clear, I will take the key so that they cannot return. Gottlieb, who did not know that he was a sleepwalker, opened his eyes very wide. But Carl, having made a sign for him to obey, he obeyed blindly. Consuelo experienced an insurmountable aversion to entering Mayor's chamber. What do you fear from that man? said Carl to her in a low voice. He has too large a sum to gain for him to think of betraying you. His advice is good. I return to the bastion. Too much haste might ruin us. Too much confidence and delay might well ruin us also, thought Consuelo. Nevertheless, she yielded. She had a weapon with her. On crossing the Schwartz's kitchen, she had seized a small knife, the possession of which somewhat reassured her. She had given her money and papers to Carl, keeping only her crucifix, which she almost considered as an amulet. Mayer locked her in his chamber for greater safety and departed with Gottlieb. After ten minutes, which appeared a century to Consuelo, Nantuil again appeared, and she remarked with terror that he locked the door as he entered and put the key in his pocket. Signora, said he in Italian, you must have patience for half an hour longer. Those fellows are drunk and will not leave their seats before the clock strikes one. Then the keeper who has the care of this quarter will put them out. And what have you done with Gottlieb, sir? Your friend Gottlieb is hidden behind a heap of faggots where he will probably go to sleep, but perhaps he will only walk all the better for it in order to follow you. You will give Carl notice, will you not? Unless I wanted to have him hung, replied the adjutant, with an expression which appeared diabolical to Consuelo. I should be careful not to leave him there. Are you satisfied with me, Signora? I am not now in a position to prove my gratitude to you, sir, replied Consuelo, with a cold contempt, which she in vain endeavored to conceal. But I hope soon to acquit myself honorably towards you. Pardo, you can acquit yourself at once, Consuelo made a movement of four, by testifying a little friendship towards me, added Mayer, in a tone of heavy and gross cajolery. Now look at you, if I were not a passionate lover of music, and if you were not so pretty a person, 
I should be very culpable for neglecting my duty so far as to let you escape. Do you believe it is a temptation of gain that has induced me to it? Bah! I am rich enough to do without you and your friends, and Prince Henry is not powerful enough to save me from a halter or perpetual imprisonment if I am discovered. In any event, my poor lookout will occasion my disgrace, my transfer to a less agreeable fortress, one further from the capital. All this requires some consolation. Come, do not be so prudish. You know well that I am in love with you. I have a tender heart. That is no reason why you should impose upon my weakness. What the devil, you are no nun, no bigot. You are a charming girl of the stage, and I'll bet you have not made your way to the first rank without bestowing the charity of a little tenderness upon your directors. Pardo, if you have sung before Maria Theresa, as they say, you have passed through the boudoir of the Prince de Conitz. You are here in a less splendid apartment, but I hold your liberty in my hands, and liberty is much more precious than the favor of an empress. Is this a threat, sir? replied Consuelo, pale with indignation and disgust. No, it is a prayer, beautiful signora. I hope that it is not a condition. By no means, fie, never. That would be an indignity replied Mayer with impudent irony, approaching Consuelo with open arms. Consuelo, terrified, fled to the extremity of the chamber. Mayer followed her. She saw well that she was lost if she did not sacrifice humanity to honor, and suddenly, impelled by the terrible determination of the Spanish women, she received the ignoble Mayer by bearing some lines of her knife in his body. Mayer was very fat, and the wound was not dangerous but on seeing his blood flow, as he was as cowardly as he was sensual, he thought himself dead and fell fainting face downwards on his bed, murmuring, I am assassinated, I am lost. Consuelo thought she had killed him and almost fainted herself. After some moments of silent terror, she nevertheless dared to approach, and finding him motionless, she took the opportunity to pick up the key of the chamber, which had fallen at his feet. Hardly had she obtained possession of it when she felt her courage revive. She went out without hesitation and rushed at a venture through the galleries. She found all the doors open before her and descended a staircase without knowing where it would conduct her. But her limbs bent beneath her when she heard the sound of the alarm bell and shortly afterwards the rolling of the drum and that cannon which had so strongly affected her in the night when Gottlieb's somnambulism had occasioned an alarm. She fell upon her knees on the lowest step, and clasping her hands, invoked the protection of God for poor Gottlieb and the generous Carl. Separated from them after allowing them to expose themselves to death for her, she no longer felt any strength, any desire for safety. Heavy and hurrying steps sounded in her ears, the glare of torches flared before her haggard eyes, and she already did not know if this was reality or the effect of her own delirium. She sank into a corner and lost all consciousness. End of chapter 19, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown.